technological, societal, and cultural change has occurred at breakneck speed over the last 50 years. So fast, according to evolutionary biologists like Daniel Lieberman, that the world we've created is no longer suited to allow our species to thrive. If that's true, how do we solve the problem? Hello and welcome to DataPoint, the podcast about all the ways that data and analytics are driving innovation in healthcare today. I'm your host, Greg Matthews, and today's guest is Steve Downs. A lot of our regular listeners are familiar with the name Steve Downs, and even if you aren't, you definitely know him indirectly through his work. You see, until very recently, Steve had been a key figure at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation for the last 17 years, most recently serving as the Foundation's Chief Technology and Strategy Officer. While at RWJF, Steve focused most of his programming efforts on bringing the benefits of health IT to the mission of improving health and healthcare. He developed and supported work in public health informatics, including the creation of the Public Health Informatics Institute and the Common Ground Program. In recent years, he focused on how consumer technologies can be leveraged to better engage patients and improve their care. He co-developed Project Health Design, a program that challenges conventional notions of personal health records, supported the Open Notes project, which opens up physicians' notes to their patients, and has been working on an exploration of how researchers could use self-tracking data to identify health patterns in everyday life. Today, Steve is focused on Building H, a project he co-founded with author and former Wired Magazine executive editor Thomas Getz. Building H is focused on enabling our entire culture of health by tackling issues related to food, transportation, shelter, and entertainment. Join me as Steve unpacks Building H right here on DataPoint. Steve, thanks so much for being with us on DataPoint today. Thanks. It's really great to be here with you. Absolutely. I've followed your career for some time, and I'm really, really interested in in, uh, sort of opening it up to our listeners here. And as we do that, I always like to start off by giving people a little bit of personal context. And so I talked in the introduction about building H and what that, uh, what a little bit about what that means, but can you paint us in some context and some background to sort of help us understand the key points in your career, the thread that sort of led you to starting building H? Sure. And and forgive me if I go back too far um, <laughs> into my career, but no such you know, thing. Um, I would say there, there are a couple of things uh, sort of to know about me kind of and the arc of my career. And the, one is uh, I'm one of those people that has always been uh, sort of split between kind of the science and technology side of, of life and then the kind mm. of liberal arts, social science, you know, societal side of life. Um, and, and so in, in college, I majored in physics, but, but maxed out on the liberal arts um, and social sciences. Um, and then actually, after spending a little bit of time working in um, sort of the early, early days of kind of fiber optic telecommunications and, and things like that, I got a degree in technology and public policy. And, and really from there, I've always kind of worked at the intersection of technology and, and social good, but uh, I'm very much a generalist. I, I'm not uh, you know, a medical doctor or uh, someone with a, uh, you know, sort of a deep specialty background in anything. Sure. And I guess I'd, I'd be really curious to hear about what even drove you to pursue the master's degree that you did. Why technology and policy and why, you know, why MIT? Um, so, 
It was a couple things. I mean, I, I, I think I, I always had an interest in, in, in public policy and social justice. I, I'd always been really fascinated by, by, as I said, sort of science and engineering and technology. I was working for, uh, you know, a telecom company in the, the mid 80s, mid to late 80s. Um, so if you think about that, that was around the time when people were like figuring out how to use email. You know? mm, yep. um, and in the meantime, you know, in the labs, people were, were pushing lots of things like uh, streaming video through fiber optics. And uh, it was actually still, you know, what, about five, four or five years before people were talking about things like the information superhighway, mm. if you remember that, that term. But I, I had do. a really strong sense that this technology is really, really important and transformative. And the, at the time, sort of working at it from the corporate angle, you know, where I was in, in kind of a large company, you know, their, their vision wasn't sort of, to me, kind of world changing. You know, it was sort of, you know, how do we get more television shows, you know, uh, in front of people? Um, and I felt that there was an aspect of this that was so important to society that I wanted to be able to come at it from a uh, uh, sort of a more of a societal perspective than, than the perspective of one company. Yep. Um, and so and that's that why I chose sense. it. And, and honestly, MIT, frankly, uh, because the program there was actually a pretty unusual boutique program. Um, there weren't a lot of sort of technology and public policy kinds of programs around the company, uh, excuse me, around the country at that time. And, uh, and MIT is an amazing place. I mean, there's sure. unbelievable amounts of innovation. Well, and you were there at a really cool time as well. There was so much going on in terms of, uh, you know, not only the internet, but well, yeah, I guess really people thinking about what would the internet come to be? You know, it's funny. You're absolutely right. And I actually remember um, when I was, can't remember if I'd been accepted or if I was still, you know, looking into it. Um, but I went um, and visited a friend of mine who was at the MIT Media Lab, and this was in, you know, probably '89 or something like that. And Walter Bender, one of the scientists there, was showing me a demo, you know, on a, like a really big workstation monitor of this sort of newspaper of the future, uh, with you know, sort of scrolling text and little uh, inserted video boxes. I mean, it was today's New York Times, right? Yep. <laughs> it's, yep. It, was, it was startling uh, to see that um, at the time. If I remember correctly, your first job coming out of that program was actually in government, right? Do you went to HHS? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And 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 this is sort of the uh, the random walk part of uh, my journey, which is that what was really interesting to me was again, how do I apply? You know, what was the sort of the emerging technology of of the internet and and high speed telecommunications? To social good, and I had a chance meeting with someone who was working in the uh, the Office of Disease Prevention and Health Promotion in the uh, in the Department of Health and Human Services. And you know, after that meeting, she wound up sort of you know I think we had had some lunch, and she said, you know, we actually have a fellowship slot you know at our office, and we've been looking for someone who could sort of help us bring kind of a technology and IT perspective to um, some of the work that we're doing. Um, and I had just moved to Washington to be with uh, who became uh, the woman who became my future wife, and uh, had sort of moved there, hoping to look, for, hoping to find some interesting work to do. And uh, I sort of jumped on that, and uh, and that brought me into health, and and really started to shape you know my understanding of public health uh, and its importance. And I'm I'm curious now as we as we fast forward a little bit, um, you obviously wound up staying in DC for some time, but ultimately wound up spending 17 years at the Robert Wood Johnson <laughs> Foundation, 
you know, arguably the most important entity uh, outside the, the U.S. government in terms of thinking about, uh, I guess, the future of healthcare. Tell us about the, that leap into Robert Wood Johnson. Where, what were you hoping to accomplish at that point, and, and how did that change over the 17 years that you were there? So uh, it was it was a wonderful opportunity to come there uh, at the time, which was which was 2002. They were sort of at a point where you know health IT was becoming hot to some extent, uh, and they were starting to get the sense that it was something that they needed to to that they couldn't ignore. They didn't have staff who were particularly focused on it or had backgrounds that that were necessarily relevant to it. And uh, and one of the senior VPs there, who was somebody that I had I, I knew from way back, um, had said, "Hey, you know, we're looking for a senior program officer um, who can kind of work in this health IT space." And so I came there, and and when I started, I was very much kind of working on kind of sort of the clinical or institutional side of of health IT. So mm-hmm. looking at things like electronic medical records and kind of interoperability across EMRs, uh, and then also uh, you know, something that's relevant today, which is public health informatics, you know, and how public health agencies uh, used IT um, and, and how they then connected into the, the healthcare system for the kinds of data flows that we're sort of, um, in many ways, wishing we saw more of today. Right. Um, so I started there, but then over the years, uh, got more and more interested in the consumer or, or sort of patient end uh, of health IT. So I uh, got involved actually in supporting a project that many people probably know called Open Notes, um, which was uh, about getting people access to the notes their clinicians wrote about them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then actually uh, started a program on personal health records with with Patty Brennan, who's now the, uh, the head of the National Library of Medicine. Sure. Um, we had an interesting take at the time, I think, which was, uh, there was all this interesting stuff going on around interoperability and how do you actually get someone all of their medical data from the different institutions that hold it. Um, but we asked sort of the next question, which is, what do you do with all that information? Mm. You know, and how can it be useful in, in helping you manage your, your, your care or manage your, your conditions? And so we started looking at, you know, kind of what would be the apps that people would build on top of that data? Which, interestingly enough, then led us um, to the idea that it wasn't necessarily the data in your medical record that were most relevant to the day-to-day managing of your care or managing of your, of your health. Okay. Um, it was actually the data about your day-to-day experience, you know, sort of mm-hmm. what you're eating, how you were feeling, you know, what your blood glucose is at, at the time. And, uh, and so we had uh, some interesting work there sort of envisioning how kind of your your kind of official medical record data would blend with your, your daily experience data. Um, and, and this was an exciting time because this is sort of when the iPhone came out a little after that. And, uh, and suddenly the ability to capture a lot of day-to-day data got very real. You know, I, I'm really, I'm curious about the transition. You, you mentioned it, but that shift in focus that you had from society, government, organizational level to patient level. Um, and by the way, our listeners are actually really big fans of Open Notes. Um, Kate DeRoche and Liz Salmi have been guests on the show before. Uh, and so I think that's a program that has been pretty beloved by certainly anybody that's come into contact with it. And I guess I'm really curious about the transition itself in your own mind. 
when you started working on a project like Open Notes, as an example, did you ever have concerns about patients' ability to process that kind of information? Did it change the way that you thought about the the role of the patient uh, in their own health? Like, give us some of that uh, some of that context, yeah. if you would. Yeah. So um, one of the things that that Early on, when I came to the foundation, uh, Risa Lavizu More, who was the the CEO from 2003 to 2017, you know, I sat down with her, and she said, "You know, one of the things that concerns me and that I'm interested in is that all the trends are suggesting that people are going to have to essentially be more engaged in and more accountable for their own care." Mm-hmm. Um, and their own health, and she was worried that they wouldn't have the tools to do so. You yeah, know, that, they, that 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 it wasn't about their own ability; it was about the resources and the tools and, and the access to information and that sort of thing. And and that that kind of set me on a course for a while, um, and led me to focus. And you know, and so when Tom Del Banco and John Jan Walker walked in the door and said, "We've got this crazy idea we want to bounce off of you," uh, called Open Notes. You know, it certainly fit, you know, that idea that, well, here's a perfect example of how do you give people access to the kind of information that will help them do a better job of taking care of themselves and and of getting the most out of the healthcare system. Uh, And then the question of whether they could handle it, you know, what was interesting at the time that Tom and Jan came in, Tom would say, you know, we float this idea among all of our colleagues in medicine and half of them sort of shrug their shoulders and say, hey, you know, this is the way the world's headed. You know, right? we're, we're living in a more transparent world. This is probably going to happen someday. I might as well just <laughs> go along with it. Mm. And the other half said, this is going to be the end of medicine as we know it. And the sky's going to fall. Um, and to me that, you know, and to Tom and Jan, the, the obvious answer was to study it. <laughs> yep. You know, to say, okay, if we're all sitting here speculating about, you know, what's going to happen if we do this thing. You know, how do you then just find out what actually does happen when you do it? Yeah. And one of the really interesting things that happened, and I remember writing a, a blog post about this years ago, was that they did a pretest kind of where they asked, they asked patients and they asked doctors, what do you think is going to happen? Mm-hmm. And the gaps between the patient perspective and the doctor's perspective on things like whether the patients would be overwhelmed or scared or, mm. or whether they would find it interesting or useful. Um, there were astonishing gaps between, you know, sort of clinicians' expectations of patients and patients' expectations of themselves. Yeah. Um, and you can imagine which direction it was in. The patients were much more <laughs> confident that they could handle the information than the doctors right. were. What's the Go time ahead. frame of that? What, I, help us to orient around oh. the timeline there. Oh, you're, you're testing my memory, but you know, I, I'm going to say, <laughs> I'm going to say, sort of 2012-ish, you know. Um, okay. You know, sort of give or take. Yeah. Um, it was it was a while back, um, but hey, there are probably you know close to 50 million patients now with access to this, which is so. so remarkable. I'm I'm going to stop us here for just a moment. Yep. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. We are going to be right back on Data Point with Steve Downs. Welcome back. You're listening to Data Point. I'm your host, Greg Matthews, and our guest today is Steve Downs of Building H, formerly of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Steve, when we went into the break, we were talking about the fact that patients had a pretty good idea early on 
that they would do much better managing their health if they had more access to data. Um, and you also had mentioned that a lot of the data that patients really find valuable in terms of managing their health doesn't necessarily come from their health record. It comes from sort of these things that capture uh, information all around us in our, in our daily lives. And I'm curious, you know, as you were sort of reaching the point of, of that insight and sort of making that shift in terms of your focus, was some of that driven by the fact that patients still have so little or such difficult access to their health record data? Is this a matter of we're, we can't get it, so we're going to focus on things that we can get? Or is it actually more important to know, you know how many steps you've taken and how many calories you've consumed and, <laughs> and that kind of thing? Well, you know, it, it's funny. It, it, I don't think it's actually so much about access. And, and it goes back to something um, I remember uh, Rushika Fernando Pillay, who runs Iora, who's the founder of Iora Health, um, and a super smart guy, uh, once said, uh, you know, hey, if I'm trying to, I'm, if I'm a clinician managing, you know, my patients, helping a patient manage diabetes, he's like, think about it. How many hours a year do I spend with that patient? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. Very few. I, am, I have almost no control or, or influence at all um on on that patient's you know sort of day-to-day management of that condition that is it is all about what they do every day and the question becomes how do we empower them uh to do it and so when you're talking about certain chronic conditions you really are wanting to understand what's happening you know either day by day or week by week um you know you're often sort of tweaking your routines to see if they make things a little bit better Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's, it just turned out that, that to sort of say, Hey, last quarter, my lab values was this, <laughs> you know, doesn't really help you on a day-to-day basis. Right. Um, you know, it, it's almost about kind of a frequency of measurement and sort of a frequency of, of adaptation. So I think it was really a bit about, you know, if you're dealing with chronic back pain, you know, the issue may be trying to figure out what are the triggers of it. Um, and some of that means you have to start looking at the data about what were you doing when that happened? And, you know, what were you doing the week before that happened? And, um, and so where so did that, that was really what was lead you in terms of the, the work that you were doing at uh, RWJF? Yeah. So it, it actually made me, I think, fairly predisposed when we got to know Gary Wolf and some of the folks at, at Quantified Self to say, this is pretty interesting. Um, and so we did a lot of uh, support of, of Quantified Self and um, also got then interested in, in the, the question of sort of how does Quantified Self at scale add up to changing the research enterprise for health more broadly? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a very different way of thinking about research is when you've got lots and lots of people, you know, sort of walking around with, with Fitbits and where, and Apple watches and, and, mm-hmm. and apps on their phones that are counting various steps and, and tracking other things. So we did a little bit of work in, in that, but, you know, a few things started to happen for me, which was, um, in some ways a nagging sense that. While all of that was important, there was a real question about whether whether it would add up to population health impact at scale. Mm. Um, and you know, well, one of the things that I, I sort of thought about, you know, with with something like a, a Fitbit, and I don't I don't mean to pick on them specifically as a company, but if you think about it sort of generically, is uh, telling you how many steps you're getting a day doesn't actually make it any easier to get those steps. Mm. You know, I, and I think that sort of nagging feeling 
connected with a few other experiences I had and, and led me to actually start thinking pretty differently about how to have impact. Interesting. And so if I'm reading that back to you, it sounds like tracking is fine, but you're really thinking about ways to answer the question about how do we actually make it easier to get those steps or to manage that diet or to manage that blood sugar or whatever it might be. Am I reading that right? Yeah, you know, you're reading it exactly right. And, you know, a few things started to happen. There are a few developments that, that kind of set me on the path that uh, I'm on now. And, and one was around 2014-ish or so, uh, Robert Johnson came out with a new vision, you know, for the foundation and, and how we were going to put our, put our emphasis on. And that was called a culture of health. And it was, it's a really broad expansive, even sort of audacious vision. Um, uh, it's a vision of an America where everyone has a fair and just opportunity to live their healthiest life possible. And, you know, that sounds really general and really broad, but I think one of the things that's important about it is that there's a this notion of health is not sort of a separate thing. It's not like mm -hmm. a sector unto itself that, that we can kind of focus on independent of the rest of of life and the rest of society. You know, health is really, if you think about it, the product of many different influences. Yeah. You know, there's, there's health in public policy. There's health in designs of our schools and communities. There's health in the products and services that, you know, are made and marketed and, and that we buy and, and use. And sort of one of the ideas of, of a culture of health is to really think about how do you get every sector that's having an influence to sort of embrace health as a core value and really start to sort of adapt, you know, mm -hmm. um, what it does uh, so that we're all rowing in the same direction uh, to improve health. So that happened and that really got me thinking a lot about sort of the role of technology and the role of the tech sector and, and you know, sort of back to kind of the Fitbit question of, you know, as a lot of tech companies were starting to get into health, they were doing it at the level of kind of activity tracking and, and mm -hmm. sort of you know, improving the healthcare experience. But I, I was thinking that it might go deeper than that. And then uh, a couple of other things happened. One was Thomas Getz, who's my co-founder at Building H uh, and had been the executive editor at Wired, uh, had left Wired and, and did an um, entrepreneur in residence stint at RWJF. And so we got mm -hmm. to know each other a lot better and started having these conversations about, you know, what would it look like to to make it easier for people to be healthy? And, and what would it look like to uh, use technology to kind of reimagine a lot of the aspects of our lives so that health were easier? And then Thomas turned me on to a book by uh, Daniel Lieberman called The Story of the Human Body. Mm. And it's a fascinating book. I, I totally recommend it to your listeners. Lieberman is a, uh, an evolutionary biologist. And first he tells the story of how we evolved to become the species we are today. And, and that's just a fascinating read to kind of understand the, the different forks in the road that, that we took. Um, but then he goes on to say something really remarkable, which is to say that, you know, through all of the changes we've made through modernization, you know, uh, in the last several generations, you know, we've actually changed the world to the point that as a species, we're not actually well suited for it. <laughs> so, yep. Basically saying we changed the world faster than the genome can keep up. And now we have this gap, you know, this mismatch. 
And he goes on to argue that so many of um, the chronic conditions that we're now seeing in, in, in great prevalence, conditions like diabetes and obesity and heart disease and, and chronic back pain and depression, anxiety, these things were used to be very rare. And what he's saying is, is that they're really a response to this mismatch between the world we've created and who we're optimized to be as a species. Mm-hmm. And that kind of hit me like a thunderbolt. <laughs> I mean, that, you know, you look at that and you say, that's a big deal. You know, then you really start to think about, well, what do you do about that? You know, uh, to borrow a a phrase from the movie Jaws, we're going to need a bigger Fitbit. Um, (laughs) It's it's not a small thing um, to sort of say, you know, we have have this world that that we've built that we're not suited for. Um, And so, yeah, go ahead. I'm not, I... um... I don't want to gloss over this because I think that concept, broadly speaking, gives you two levers to pull. One of them is how do we adapt ourselves? But the other one is how do we adapt the world? Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of making the assumption that your focus is on the latter because sort of adapting humans is, uh, well... <laughs> It's so, a, it's a little bit out there, but I'm curious where how you think about that. Yeah, so it's interesting. So so actually, um, there's a, there's a very interesting book uh, by Juan Enriquez and and Steve Gillum's called um, Evolving Ourselves, mm-hmm. um, which actually takes that former tack, which says basically, you know, through genetic engineering, CRISPR and the like, um, we're going to have the ability to actually sort of accelerate the evolution of humans in a very intentional and directed way. And, and mm-hmm. why not do that so that we don't suffer from diabetes, for example. Um, and it's fascinating. It's provocative. It's not the way that, that, that I, I think it's not the way that I'm most comfortable with. Let me, let me just put it that way. Yeah. Uh, but I, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating book. Um, yeah. The, the, there's a middle option, which is we do what we're doing, which is <laughs> essentially try to ignore the gap and just try keep trying. And then the third is, is to, to start working on the, on those conditions. And the way I've been looking at this is basically it's become hard to be healthy in the U S. And if you think about that, you know, what I mean by that is if you look at, at the changes in, you know, statistics around chronic diseases, diabetes going from 1% to 10%, you know, from 1960 to, to today, you know, obesity, 14% to 42%, severe obesity going from 1% to 9%. And these are huge changes. Um, and we're also sleeping less, you know. Um, I think 33% of people are now getting less than six hours of sleep a night. Um, that used to be 2%. Wow. Um, uh, you know, there, there are crazy things like even myopia <laughs> is becoming worse and worse and worse. Uh, over the years. So there's just all these things that are going on, you know, and we're eating, what, 25% more calories than we used to. Mm -hmm. More people are lonely. You know, our commutes are getting longer. More people are driving instead of, you know, walking or biking to work or taking public transit. I mean, so all of these changes, huge shifts over years, and they're unsustainable. Yep. Uh, But the the, the way I sort of put it is, is that we're all swimming upstream. Basically, you know, in order to try to stay healthy, we have to constantly swim upstream. It's really hard work. And most of the solutions we've come up with for that take the form of trying to get people to become better swimmers, you know, um, whether that's with motivation or with training or with tools. Um, But in the end, you know, we're still asking people to swim upstream. You know, the way I look at it is that the question we should be asking 
is what does it take to reverse the direction of the river? Yep. You know, what does it take so that we, that, that going about your business every day, living your life actually naturally leads you to a healthy life um, rather than something that you have to work extra hard to accomplish. And so if you were to sort of sum up the reason for being around building H, is that it? Well, that, that is, yeah. Um, we are here to, you know, to focus on building health into everyday life. What that means is it means reimagining, reimagining kind of the fundamentals of everyday life, how we eat, how we sleep, how we get from place to place, how we socialize, how we entertain ourselves, to kind of reimagine those and, uh, and to do so with health as a goal. Um, so that it actually, you know, as I said, comes naturally. It's not something we have to kind of add on later. But I think that I think there's tremendous opportunity to do that, and and that's what we're hoping to do is to catalyze a lot of innovation around that, a lot of aligned yeah. innovation. So, do you see Building H as a collective, uh, a company, uh, a think tank, a, a product development and design company? How how would you D- d- articulate your vision with the caveat that I know it's very, very early days. Yeah, no, it, it, it is early days. Uh, right now, I think we're calling ourselves a project. Um, uh, <laughs> but I think there is, a, there is a collective aspect of this. Um, and I think part of what it is, is what we're trying to get to is this sort of notion that lots of folks are innovating in an aligned way on a sort of... Um, I guess what I would call kind of a coherent and complementary set of challenges uh, mm-hmm. around building health into everyday life. So what you want to see is people working at sort of reinventing the food experience, you know, reinventing the transportation experience, mm-hmm. uh, reimagining entertainment so that it's not always kind of couch-based and screen-based. Uh, a lot of those things, you know, what we want to see is a lot of people sort of investing in that, developing things uh, in those areas. The role that I think that we're probably going to play, at least in the short run, is around sort of creating a little bit of the, the umbrella um, around, in some ways, complementary movements. Uh, you know, we're going to be doing a certain amount of evangelizing, you know, like, yep. like I'm doing here. Uh, you know, we've got a, uh, a website uh, that's going to have a lot of resources, or at least I hope by airtime, uh, it'll have a lot of resources. Excellent. Um, a newsletter that folks can sign up for uh, that we put out every couple of weeks, uh, you know, with sort of relevant current stories and, and sort of our take on, on, on how they fit together. But then I think we're going to have to do some work around uh, sort of translating the general ideas, you know, into some of the specific innovation opportunities, um, translating, you know, some of the questions of how do you, how do you think about health in a positive way so that you're applying like this value of health across a full range of products in a company? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what does that look like? Um, how do you do that so that it's, is, you know, we don't want just generalities. We want to actually be able to translate this into real actions that, that people can take. And that's interesting. And it's, it's interesting that you mentioned a company sort of interjecting health. Mm. Do you think about the workplace as an important vehicle for some of these changes? I, I do. And I think, you know, it's interesting. So, so actually some work that came out of, of Roman Johnson Foundation and Harvard around how corporations and companies and businesses can influence health, um, I think is, is, is helpful here because the framework that they had said there are really four different ways 
that a company affects health. And sort of one is how it treats its employees, you know, things mm-hmm. like health insurance and other benefits and, and sort of the stresses that put, they put on people. A second is how they show up in the communities where they're based. Mm-hmm. Uh, a third is environmental pollution, in effect, or, or, or the reverse of that, whatever that mm-hmm. would be. Uh, but then the fourth is actually the impact of the products and services that they sell on, on their customers. And I think that's where we want to focus, is, mm. the, is that fourth group. Because, and often what we see is we see a company that will be doing a lot of stuff that's related to consumers. They affect consumers in many different ways. Um, and then they'll create a, a, a separate line for, of health products, you know, yep. a separate you know, services around health. And what we want to do is to have them see that and actually as, you know, health is not, again, that vertical that you kind of carve out separate from your other verticals, but really see it as a horizontal. Yep. So that in any product that you're, you're selling that a consumer is using is to think about how could we design that in a way that, that leads them to healthy behaviors or that, that encourages or facilitates healthy behaviors as opposed to that maybe pushes them in the other direction or pulls them in the other direction. Interesting. And off the top of your head, are there examples of the sort of the class of products or services that you think may be ripe for this? Um, yeah, I, I can think of examples that are that sort of exist today that I think are sort of small examples that, that move in the right direction. Um, so if you think about food, you know, honestly, I think the prepared meal kits like HelloFresh and, and Blue Apron play a positive role because they mm. actually take, the, you know, if you think about what it takes to cook dinner, you know, it's a lot of steps involved. Uh, there's yep. a lot of decisions to make, a lot of activities. You know, by eliminating, you know, what, you know, a third, a half of those steps, you're making it much easier for people to cook dinner, which is generally a much more healthy way to have <laughs> to have a meal um, yep. than the alternatives. There's a company called June that makes smart ovens, uh, and their their goal is to just take some of the um, the complexity out of cooking. You know, they just want it to make it really easy to take a recipe. Um, and cook it in a way that's going to be foolproof and, and you're going to have a great experience. You know, and, and there's a common thread as, as, I, as I'll go through some of these examples. It's about lowering the barrier to a healthy behavior, right? Yep. It's about making a healthy behavior a little bit more delightful. You know, classic example is electric bikes. You know, if you think about it, what an electric bike does is it makes it easier for someone to use that in a more consistent um, and in some way more ambitious fashion, you know, than mm-hmm. a regular bike. You know, if you live in a hilly area uh, and your commute to work is, is up and down a bunch of hills, you probably might not want to do that on a regular bike. Right. Um, or, you know, if you live nine miles away instead of five miles away, maybe you don't do that in a bike. But with an e-bike, you could. Um, so that, that lowers the barrier in that way. You know, the, the classic example in all of this, um, and it comes from the entertainment sector is Pokemon Go. Um, hmm. You know, if you think about Pokemon Go, it is, uh, it's not about health. Um, it's a game. You know, people do it because it's fun and entertaining. Uh-huh. But think about what it's making you do. You know, it's getting you outdoors, which is yep. generally very good for your health. It's getting you to move around, also quite good. Um, and in a lot of cases, you're going to do it with friends. Um, yeah. and, and, and being connected with friends, spending time with friends is also good for your health. So, you know, you're getting three good behaviors out of something that's not about health. You know, you're getting three good behaviors out of the game. That's um, right. That's, and that's pretty cool. That's, uh, that is a good example. And I love the e-bike example too, because there's so many layers in there that are 
potentially benefit uh, beneficial to community. They're beneficial to uh, the environment in terms of reducing pollution. Those are the obvious yes. ones. But then there's also, yeah. you know, a slowdown in the pace. You know, putting yourself at a place where you're getting exercise that's going to make it easier for you to sleep. Uh, you know, yeah. all of these dominoes. Yeah. Now, I, I got to tell you, when I was commuting back and forth to Robert Johnson, I was very fortunate to have a short commute and I, and I would just use a regular regular bike. Mm -hmm. um, but I remember, you know, one time just riding to work and just my legs are pumping, my heart's pumping. I'm, you know, the air has just had just that right amount of kind of crispness in it. You know, I was seeing nature all around me, you know, mm -hmm. my mind was firing you know, faster than ever on, on yep. sort of interesting stuff that I was doing at work. Um, and it was not about exercise, you know, it was not about, I mean, it was about everything, right? It was just about yeah. an experience that was actually wonderful. And, and I think that that's, uh, you know, as, as you point out, there are a number of these kinds of behaviors that, yeah, you know, we know they're good for you, but they're just good in general, uh, whether it's your health or your well-being more broadly, um, or as you point out, for the environment and, and for our communities. Sure. Well, I... I, I could do this for hours, Steve, but I want to. <laughs> I want to wrap us up in a in a good way here. And I think what I'd love to close out with is just thinking about building H and where it's headed. Who do you want to be involved in building H, and what are some things that uh, you know initial participants might be able to do? You mentioned subscribing to the newsletter, so sort of mm -hmm. staying informed and getting in the the rhythm. Uh, of the work that's happening is one thing, and we'll put a link to to be able to do that right. in our show notes. Who else do you want to be involved, and in, and what is it that you'd like them to do, uh, at least initially? No, that's, that's that's fantastic. I want any actually anyone who cares about this <laughs> to be yeah. involved right now. Uh, one of the things that we're going to do, uh, and and it's in the the next iteration of the website, which depending on when when this airs, will either be up or or up shortly. Uh, but what I'd love for people to do is, is there are going to be a number of things there where we're just trying to get resources on, you know, what are some of the important facts about you know, sort of health, wellness, and, and our society that, that we need to, to be sharing, you know, to sort of tell the story of, of the challenges we're facing. So we're going to have some of those up there, but we're going to encourage people to add more to it. Um, one of the things that we really want to do is spotlight some of the companies that are, are building interesting products that we think really fit the vision um, and that move us forward. So, you know, we'll have some up there, but we don't know all of them. Um, so sure. we want to hear about those. Um, so I, I think things like that, you know, we've got a sort of a reading list there that I, I'm sure uh, people will see that list and say, oh my God, what about this article? Um, we're going to really design it in a way that we want people to contribute in that way. Um, you know, I think the second thing is to just talk up the idea, have the conversation with friends and neighbors. You know, one of the things, uh, you know, I, I wrote a short piece about, you know, my, my transition into this work, you know, and I said, in, in some ways it seems just outrageous that, that, you know, we think that we can do something about this. I mean, it's, it is big, right? <laughs> But, you know, these kinds of changes come when people see it and say, hey, that, that speaks to me in some way, or I'm inspired by that, or I agree with that vision. And they just start talking to people and sharing it and having the conversations and even debating it, critiquing it, all of that. So, so what I would encourage people to do is, is check out the website, see if there's something in there that, that you can contribute to. But, but moreover, um, you know, as I said, talk with your friends, talk with your family, talk with your neighbors 
because um, we need this thing to become something that uh, that everybody understands and is, is wanting and, and wants to work towards, you know, sort of the same goals. Yeah, fantastic. All right, well, that is that's an excellent way to close. Um, what is the web address? Yeah, it's uh, it's buildingh.org, all one word, um, no fantastic. spaces or anything like that. All right. Well, and if you're driving while you're listening to this, don't feel like you have to write it down right now. It's going to be in the show notes. Um, Steve, I'm so grateful for you spending this time with us today. And I know it's a little more time than we had potentially imagined, but what's going on here, I think is, is too good to fit into a small box. So thank you for sharing it with us. Greg, thank you. It's really been a pleasure talking with you. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks so much for listening to the Data Point podcast. If you like what you've heard, please do rate, review, and share it with your social network. It means a lot. And if you have ideas for show topics or guests, please email them to me at greg at healthquant.health or send a direct message to at Chai Moose on Twitter. That's C-H-I-M-O-O-S-E on Twitter. For more information about this show or any of the terrific healthcare podcasts in the Touchpoint Media Network, check them out at touchpoint.health. See you next time.